and welcome on in, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. We are kicking off the new year in style. That's right, it is 2018, and this is our inaugural episode where we will launch off into another great year of mining and metals coverage. Uh, as usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do head over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. So I hope everybody had a great holiday, recharged the battery, hung out with family and friends, hit the slopes, enjoyed the eggnog, and all those great holiday activities we are so fond of. But it was a cold one. Let me tell you, I, uh, I actually went up to Edmonton to visit the in-laws uh, over the Christmas break, and it was during that like deep freeze. It was like negative 35 when I was up there, and I'm like, geez, Louise, what the heck? Uh, my, my thin Vancouver blood it cannot handle this. Which is funny, I'm getting a bit weak here, because I was actually born in Calgary, so I'm used to those, sort of those Alberta winters, and I spent about five years in Ontario uh, at Queen's University and elsewhere in Toronto. So I used to be made of much tougher stuff, but uh, my blood has thinned, I guess, as I've lived uh, a longer period in Vancouver, and that negative 35, you could feel that feel that deep, deep in your bones. So uh, so hopefully everyone stayed warm. I know uh, we're emerging from that cold snap now. I gather we're going to have a sort of Canada-wide thaw, hopefully, here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but in the meantime, please do stay warm. But in the meantime, we have another absolutely awesome episode put together for your entertainment and education this week, where we're sitting down with some of the leading technology and mining professionals uh, to talk again once more about uh, innovation and disruption in the mining industry. Uh, I visited uh, Gold Corp's office here in Vancouver just before the Christmas break uh, to sit down with their vice president of technology, Louise Canapari, uh, to talk a little bit about a project they're doing with a company called Finger Foods. Uh, also joining us was the director of business affairs and operations from Finger Foods, Graham Cunliffe. Uh, and we're going to have a rather wide-ranging discussion uh, about, uh, you know, the challenges and successes in mining, uh, some specific things Gold Corp's doing in terms of digitization and automation, uh, some of the technologies they're dealing with. And we'll also talk to Graham about a, a bit of an outsider's view into the mining industry from the technology side. And these are discussions I always find really interesting because uh, when you talk to someone from IBM, someone from Google, Microsoft, etc., uh, they always have really unique things to say about an industry they view as sort of a legacy industry, an older industry, uh, and how uh, they're working together with us to modernize and digitize uh, a lot of the records, the processes, etc. in the mining sector. So it's always a really interesting uh, conversation to have. This one especially because we're sort of pairing the uh, major miner side with a small-scale uh, internet technology provider in Finger Foods that works with virtual reality, uh, machine learning, AI, etc. So it's a, a really cool discussion we're going to have uh, at Gold Corp's headquarters about uh, some of the things they're doing uh, in terms of partnering partnering and R&D and things like that. So really exciting there. I look forward to that one. And then we're going to augment that with uh, Leslie's most recent edition of the Geology Corner. Uh, and this one is also sort of technology related in so much as we're going to talk about geostatistics. Uh, Leslie is joined this week by Mo Seria Vestava, who is the vice president at TriStar Gold. Uh, Mo's one of the preeminent authorities on resource estimation and geostatistics. So this is a really cool chat uh, about the application of advanced statistical methods in not just resource modeling, but also exploration. Uh, so Leslie's going to sit down with Mo uh, and talk a little bit about some of the software packages and applications of uh, high-level statistics. Mo actually went to MIT and is a, a really high-level statistician uh, to talk a little bit about uh, how and what is being done in the mining industry in terms of maybe more theoretical uh, modeling and stuff like that in terms of exploration, in terms of target generation, and how it can be done to sort sort of uh, talk about deposits in a more sort of forward-looking way that's also 
compliant. Uh, so Leslie's going to talk a little bit about, uh, we all remember the Barkerville Gold uh, quote-unquote scandal from a few years back. Uh, they're going to talk a little bit about um, Novo Resources and the WITS 2.0 theory and what's going on at their Karatha project in Western Australia um, and how that sort of fits into these really high-level sort of uh, interpretive statistical models that they use to develop resource prog uh, exploration programs, I should say, um, and how like really high-level mathematical statistics works into G works. I shouldn't say into geology, but alongside or in tandem with the geology. So this is another really cool one. If I, I actually wasn't overly familiar with geos, geostatistics, so this was a cool one for me because it was sort of like a, a crash course in what they are, uh, where they're being applied, and how, once again, how the oil and gas industry is ahead of, of the mining industry in terms of leveraging some of these um, more uh, advanced statistical models and processes. So uh, it, it's an interesting one with Leslie. But before we get into these segments, uh, let's hit our news and notes uh, for the first time in 2018 and look at the state of metals and world affairs. Commodities broadly had a happy festive season with gold up to $1,319.10 per ounce at the time of recording. Meanwhile, silver was trading at $17.22 per ounce. Over on the base metal side, copper was trading at $3.28 per pound, zinc at $1.52 per pound, while West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was trading at $60.37 per barrel at the time of recording. Copper producers received a welcome gift over the holiday period as 2018 Copper Treatment and Refining Charges, TCRCs, were agreed upon between Tongling, Non-Ferris, and Freeport McMoran. Uh, these rates are at the lowest level seen in the past five years and were subsequently adopted by all members of the China Smelters Purchase Team. BMO notes that these lower TCRC rates will allow miners to take greater revenue share of the overall copper price with the volume of new smelting capacity expected to come online in China over 2018, coupled with falling global mine output over the last year helping to strengthen their hand. Uh, BMO adds that given the overcapacity in Chinese smelting, which is now developing, they would not be surprised to see this become a target of supply-side reforms in the coming years. So good news all around for the red metal. Uh, we did see that uh, bump over the holiday period as we hopped up over that $3.20 per pound level. Uh, if you rewind till uh, our last episode with Colin Hamilton, he did talk a little bit about the supply-demand fundamentals for copper and uh, his forward-looking uh, sort of investment thesis on the red metal. So do check that out uh, as we move ahead here. Uh, on the gold side, uh, we are obviously starting out a little bit strong here as we're well above the $1,300 mark on the back of a weaker dollar, uh, which is helping gold start the new year on the front foot. Uh, we opened at about $1,305 per ounce, I think, to start 2018. And as mentioned, we're up about that $1,310 per ounce uh, level early on, uh, a level previously reached, I think, in September of last year. So it's uh, a relatively a quarter high here we're looking at for gold. Uh, uh, BMO notes that the dollar came under considerable pressure in 2017, down 10%, uh, is selling pressure gain momentum in December. Uh, the ECB, uh, European Central Bank, initiated its tapering program this month. Uh, and re recent comments from the Bank of Japan also also hint at a shift in policy outlook both the yen and euro have outperformed against the dollar so uh, hopefully a, a little bit of a, a sustained rally for gold prices uh, we never really hope for a weaker dollar let's be honest uh, we always want strong uh, industrials and fundamentals moving ahead for all our metals but uh, maybe we'll see that uh, gold price hang up there above 1300 which would certainly help all the Canadian and international majors uh, on the production side so uh, great news to start the year mostly uh, for metals as we also noted uh, West Texas Intermediate was also up above $60 per barrel. So uh, good news on the energy side as well. 
But let's get right into our content for the week. Uh, we'll start out with my visit to Gold Corp's head office here in Vancouver, BC, where I sat down with Vice President of Technology, Louise Canapari, uh, and Graham Cunliffe, the Director of Business Affairs and Operations at Finger Food, uh, to have, as I mentioned, a rather broad-ranging discussion on uh, innovation, disruption, and technology in mining. Uh, and we really dig into these sort of um, partnerships and uh, agreements and research and development initiatives being entered into by the major companies uh, to sort of look at where uh, there's some value add propositions in terms of new technologies like machine learning, like AI, uh, like virtual reality, um, and uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, where the mining industry is in terms of being an innovator, where it can improve some of the successes, some of the challenges, etc. Uh, so I'm really excited to run this. This was a really great chat. Uh, I think it runs about 20, 25 minutes, I think. So uh, I'll let, uh, let everybody listen to this one. Uh, and then I'll be back after the break to intro Leslie's next edition of the Geology Corner. Welcome in, everybody. My name is Matthew Kievel, and I am here with the Northern Miner Podcast at Gold Corp's offices in downtown Vancouver. And today I'm joined by uh, Graham Cunliffe, the Director of Business Affairs and Operations at Finger Food, and Luis Canapari, the Vice President of Technology at Gold Corp. Thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so today we're here to sit down, obviously, and you might have gathered by the business titles, talk a little bit about innovation and technology and mining. Um, so first and foremost, Let's start broadly. Um, Luis, maybe you can uh, lead us off here a little bit. You often hear that the mining industry is maybe not so much a laggard, but a little bit behind uh, some of its peer industries in terms of manufacturing, aerospace, obviously, um, and some of the other maybe heavier industries in the world. Um, could you kick us off maybe and talk a little bit about where you think the mining industry is in terms of adopting technology? And, and do you think it's true that it's a little bit behind? I think it's a fair comment that we're... Uh slightly behind everybody else, especially when you compare it to our space or manufacturing or the financial sector. But I mean, we have been uh, slow in adopting some of these new technologies and perhaps because of the uh, very long capital process of our industry, right? I mean, it takes a long time to get a mine from permitting all the way to uh, operations to operate and then to a reclamation, right? So these assets take a long time to develop and sometimes that, uh, and, and they're very capital intensive, which sometimes uh, limits your ability to innovate uh, quickly. And obviously, as VP of Technology at Gold Corp, you're having these conversations about how to get this process started, how to sort of maybe not necessarily speed it up, but but uh, expedite it, make it more efficient. What are some of the things as you start to maybe help mining catch up? What are some of the big hurdles that you've encountered so far? User adoption is probably the uh, the hardest one. I mean, yeah. You have a, you know an aging workforce, and uh, sometimes uh, bringing new processing, new technologies in, it uh, takes a lot of time and convincing. Having the right change management process in place is really helpful and uh, incentivizing the employees to adopt new technologies and make their work more efficient and uh, communicate them properly what they're getting out of these new technologies is always key to a success. And do you think this is a relatively new process? Like, or, like has mining sort of turned a corner, would you say, in the last maybe <laughs> three to five years in terms of just recognizing this is necessary? I think within the last five years we recognized yeah. the uh, value that we were leaving on the table for not innovating. Yeah. And I think that's that aha uh, moment our executives only had. It's like, look, at if we invest in these things, only sustainable costs will, will come down. We'll find ounces faster. Our environmental footprint will be lower. Our employees will be safer, right? And uh, when we start investing in these things, you start getting a lot more traction when your executives are behind you. 
and also, I guess that's a conversation you have to have in terms of shareholder value, right? You have to sort of establish some key performance indicators for technology, some some potential return on investment type things, you know, to justify that the investment of that capital, right? Absolutely, but all yeah. these products have great returns. Automation, for example, I mean, when you're performing ten percent better than an autonomous rail, look. All those things go right into the bottom line of the company, and uh, all the projects and innovation that we're doing, they all have high returns, and uh, I think the shareholders will start realizing the value of, uh, of these investments very soon. Yeah, and Graham, I'd like to bring you in here because, uh, well, first we'll get a little bit of a, a, a download explanation on what finger food does, because it's very unique, I think. Um, but, but secondly, we'll, we'll dig a little bit into uh, coming from the IT side, and as you uh, mentioned in the off-tape here, you're, you guys are relatively new to working with the mining industry, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But first and foremost, why don't you let our listeners know just sort of what Finger Food does. You bet. Thank yeah. you. So Finger Food Studios is a technology services company. Um, so we work with clients such as GoldCorp to identify core business challenges or optimization opportunities, and then use leading-edge technology to implement solutions that help address those. Okay. And when I say leading-edge technology, it could be augmented or virtual reality, IoT data systems, um, robotic systems, uh, and even AI. And AI. Okay, cool. And uh, so maybe a little bit it, from either one of you, uh, what's sort of the project you are working on with Goldcorp is? Sure, I can speak about that. Yeah. So uh, our relationship with Fingerfoot started um, four or five months ago. And our idea was to uh, improve uh, ore sorting at the face okay. of the mine. And what we're trying to do is use augmented reality and, uh, and a virtual reality to give the operators more information at the cockpit of the shovels oh. to uh, to be able to move more accurately the material yeah. to the life cycle, right? So uh, that's how we started the process. Uh, we started talking to Microsoft about their technology. We talked to other providers about uh, what kind of technology we could apply into this process, right? And uh, this never been done before. So we yeah. took a little bit of money out of R&D. I said, okay, let's do an experiment and build a prototype together and see if we can build something that, uh, that we could replicate all of our minds, right? So uh, that's how we started. And it's interesting, you hear this story quite a bit, is that uh, mining companies, there's not so much technology built for mining companies that you can buy off the shelf in terms of innovative technology, in terms of VR and things. <laughs> so you're sort of either porting technology over from other industries, be that oil and gas or manufacturing, or you're entering into partnerships to do the R&D and develop it yourself. So Graham, as somebody who's sort of new, uh, you said to the mining business, and you guys are getting into it uh, with Goldcorp to uh, develop this product. What what are some thoughts you have sort of on, uh, early thoughts obviously, on, on mining and, and how that sort of... Uh, provides an opportunity for finger food in terms of maybe doing something new? Um, well, for us, I think it's really exciting because it's uh, a mature industry. Mm -hmm. And so, as Luis mentioned, like you have very profitable mines that are running. And so for us, we can come in and there's actually a business case to be made for the investment into the technology because there's an optimization and payback that affects the bottom line right away. So for us as a company, when we're going and looking at custom solutions to build, that's the key for us is like, what is the business value that it's providing? And so when we look at mining, we see a ton of opportunity for that type of improvement. And is there any sort of like parallel industries or, or uh, other projects you've worked on where you can draw from the experience you guys have done maybe in in let's say manufacturing or any other sort of business where there's parallels to mining that you could sort of port over some of that experience you've done? Or? Well, I think that mining is very unique in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sort of a, a core problem that we solve across many industries is when there is very valuable data um, that is in some place and not necessarily accessible by say an operator within okay. a mine. And so um, bridging that gap and providing that operator with information that will help them do their job better is something that we see across a number of industries. And this, this is a big topic in our industry is, is digitization of data, obviously, um, and uh, accessibility as well, for that matter, at all levels of the mine. Um, 
production uh, scale. Because a lot of times you hear about silos at the mine level, Louise, where uh, one operator underground might not necessarily know what the supervisor <laughs> is, or, or I hear from uh, original equipment manufacturers, OEMs, about how they, in the old days, a piece of equipment used to disappear underground for two days and nobody knew, knew what it was doing. Um, so now well, that, that, doesn't that doesn't happen anymore, right? Um, but uh, Louise, maybe talking a little bit about um, what some of this, you know, sort of digitization and, and that data development at the mine level. Um, it, a little bit about that process. I mean, how hard has it been? And then, and have you seen any returns thus, thus far on, on on that sort of effort? Absolutely. I mean, uh, five years ago, uh, we started actually putting uh, Wi-Fi underground. And we're like, literally five years ago, and I'm like, why don't we have this? <laughs> and then uh, we start putting in uh, the right infrastructure and the right backbone to be able to enable some of the things we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, to your point, right now we have more control of where all of our employees are, which part of the mine they're operating at, and uh, what is the compliance to plan and and uh, look, becoming, I think the biggest return that you get from all that uh, IoT integration is now you have a lot more compliance to plan. Yeah. So the more accurate you are at where you're mining and uh, how many tons are you moving, the more accurate you are against your plan and your forecast, which is always uh, great in our industry. The more predictable you are, the better you are as a mining company. And Luis and Graham, you could probably both speak to this, but um, one of the sort of challenges I hear about from uh, IT companies and mining companies is standardization, where the data can be a little bit disparate in terms of how it was maybe his, if you have a hundred year old mine then a lot of the data is maybe on paper or maybe you oh, know yeah, we have <laughs> yeah, I guess see Louise is shaking his head we don't have camera but you can but I mean this seems to be a large challenge both for the IT industry who's used to dealing with really really well manufactured data meta tags etc that's Silicon Valley sort of manufactures this data in a very uniform way that you guys can all deal with, right? Mining doesn't do that at all. The companies are different. The mines are different. So maybe, uh, Graham, if you want to kick us off a little bit on data standardization, because I'm sure you guys deal with that quite a bit. And then Louise can talk a little bit about uh, the challenge of sort of standardizing across different operations and, and, and making that data usable as a, as a corporation. Yeah. yeah, so since we're fairly new to mining, maybe I'll talk about natural resources in yeah. general. Um, so we've definitely found that there is, I won't say a lack of standardization, but every time we get a data dump, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's actually nothing new to the company yeah. um, because we work across a, a broad range of industries. Mm -hmm. So for us to basically get data and figure out what to do with it is nothing new. Mm -hmm. um, but is it, uh, in terms of that, maybe just a little bit about standardization, and because like, people hear that term a lot. And they'd hear about data, uh, how you manufacture and deal with data, and you said data dumps, and there's all these colloquial terms that we hear so often from the IT side, but maybe a little bit just about data standardization and what you guys need to do when you get a data dump. Let's say you just get a data dump. What what goes into that afterwards? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, yeah, and for a moment I forgot <laughs> what industry we're talking about. Um, so yeah, basically when we get a data dump, we need to first validate that the information is correct, um, and then basically sort it into some sort of format so that whatever software solution we're building can actually ingest that and then present the important information back to whoever is meant to be the end user or consumer of that information. Um, so when we approach projects like this, there is a, a data science aspect to it where we have people who are just focused on basically cleansing data to make sure that our systems can use it effectively. And it's interesting to me because, I mean, a lot of this data is going to be highly specialized, be it a, an overhead grade or, or any sort of like a slope in a pit. I mean, how do you guys, how do you breach that wall where you guys get to understand what Luis is talking about when he says, okay, we, we move 5,000 tons per day at 0.46 grams per ton. How does the IT company process that figure? 
Well, uh, we get to spend a lot of time together yeah. <laughs> projects, maybe more so than Luis would like. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you also guys, uh, you hire a couple mine engineers and yeah. geologists yeah. as part of your team to okay. do these specific projects. Perfect. So yeah. that really helped in that process. Yeah. yeah, it's a combination of having in-house expertise, mm -hmm. even if it's not every single person who works within our company out of the 140, it's making sure that there are a couple people that we can tap on as we need them, yeah. um, as well as spending time with the client and actually really absorbing um, as much information we can about their business. And Louise, maybe a little bit of, of, of discussion, as, as I mentioned at the onset there, about that sort of digitization, standardization, How what sort of implications that has, not just at a single mine level, but across a multi-asset company where you're operating, you know, five to ten large-scale operations at any given time. I see you touching an important point, right? For mining, we have a lot of data in paper still. Yeah. And when I look at some of our more historical mines, I mean, the newer mines like Eleanor, Sierra Negro, yeah. I mean, everything's digitalized. But when you when you go back to Red Lake, Red Lake. Porcupine, they're a you hundred-year-old know, Red Lake, right? Yeah. Uh, you have 80 years worth of data sitting down in a vault somewhere and uh, that is not digitalized. Nobody has really access to on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So yeah. those become a challenge. And uh, yes, we have to do an effort and an investment to digitalize some of it and then put it into a format that, to your point, have metadata that can be sorted through, etc. So yes. Historical mines have a bigger challenge than, uh, than the newer mines, mm -hmm. but uh, it's not undoable. And when you look at the value of that data, I mean, you probably have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of paper data sitting there. Yeah. And uh, if you can digitize and analyze, I mean, there's a, a wealth of knowledge that, that over the years that, that you could tap on that, it, that is significantly more valuable than the cost of uh, digitalizing it. And then the other thing that I'm noticing with the new technologies that are coming in, that are emerging, I'm a big fan of artificial intelligence and its ability to uh, structure unstructured data. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at things like Watson or, or all the other artificial intelligence that are out there and uh, we're looking at how can we ingest all that data and figure out how to sort it faster and more properly and how to organize it without us having to actually go in and manually do the work that we do with fingerprints, like trying to say this is how the data should be organized from a logical point of view. Yeah. Try to have a machine sort through it and come up with a logical conclusion without having to have that much manual processing with it. I think that's where the technology is going to go to in the next couple of years. And we're investing heavily in making that, uh, that technology available for us. Now, it's interesting because, I mean, a lot of what we hear about mining, like we mentioned silos, and maybe if you discover a new process, let's say at Cerro Negro, how long does it take it to get it up to the guys at Red Lake or the girls at Red Lake, right? Like, I mean, as an organization, in a meta sense, I mean, that sort of information sharing, opening that up, is that a big push that you're looking at now? Yeah, we want to make it, uh, especially in exploration, yeah. uh, it's very solid, right? I mean, every geologist and yeah. having their own system, and uh, we're trying to, our SVP of exploration at Paul Harvich is trying really hard to try to bring all that data into a uh, into form that all his team worldwide can actually look at the same uh, at the same data and uh, and make faster decisions and uh, and more accurate targets for drilling right so uh, yeah. we're certainly putting a lot of effort into trying to make and Paul is being a great uh, advocate of digitalizing all of our exploration data mm -hmm. and trying to make that central system available to his whole group across the company, across all jurisdictions. Yeah, and, and Graham, I mean, you mentioned machine learning and AI as well. Um, um, it's, we hear those, again, we hear those terms all the time. They're big headlines, they're in Bloomberg and <laughs> Forbes, and everyone's like, oh, machine learning is we the next, this. we should totally do this. <laughs> yeah. But can you talk a little bit maybe for our listeners about when someone says that, yeah. uh, when someone says they're using AI, they're using Watson, or machine learning, what, what is this exactly and what is it What is it they're doing? Yeah, I'll give you a very simple example of what that could yeah. potentially look like. So with Gold Corp, where there are a number of assets around the world and uh, a bunch of data, let's say it has been 
at least put in place in a digital format so it can be accessed. Um, machine learning or AI could be used to actually surface important information from each of those areas. Okay. Um, so you can basically train it with some data and say this is the type of thing that you're looking for. So instead of having a team of people go through and try and figure out um, what areas people should focus on, you could have um, an AI system go and do that for you and then basically say here are the areas that you need to focus. Uh, and then taking it a step further, you could use a tool like augmented reality to actually surface that information in a way wow. that you can understand it. Wow, that's pretty cool. And I mean, I, this is going to be sort of a, a difficult question. And it, it's maybe not fair to you to ask this because I'm asking you to sum up an entire industry. But, um, <laughs> like, where are we? Like, how far along is this? Like, because you hear, you know, what it's capable of doing, what it might be capable of doing, where we might be in 20 years. But where is AI and, and machine learning now? Like, how far along are they in, in, in this process? So we're actually seeing them being implemented in the real world right now and providing value. So I would say, like, the, the promise phase where the hype is built up and people try some things and they don't really work is over. Yeah. Now we're in the that period of time where people are actually implementing systems that use these types of technology. And you hear about it with in terms, but you hear about you know high profile successes and failure, yes. be it the the Facebook news algorithm that just totally has blown up and yeah. listed really inappropriate things at the top of the Facebook thing, right? So it's, it's still sort of in, I guess, a, uh, a development like, phase. With every new technology, right? I mean, at the beginning, it's going to be a lot of hype. And you're yeah. going to have these failures and. What I recommend to any mining company or any other industry in the world, right, is uh, don't be afraid of fail. Mm. You know, if you take some of these projects and you consider them for what they are, they're R&D, they're an attempt to make your company better, and uh, look, don't be afraid of failing, and if you're failing, fail fast and move on to the next uh, to yeah. the next idea. If you can live into that mentality, you can get some of these projects to start working, and I do believe they're going to yield a lot of value for any company that decides to implement them. And I actually seen some of the early results from artificial intelligence, the work that we're doing with Finger Foods, with some of the other uh, manufacturers. And look, I think they're incredible. I mean, the opportunities are out there, and uh, these can significantly change and, and disrupt the way that we do mining. And it's interesting because while we talk a lot about technology and, and what sort of uh, inno is innovation in terms of machinery and computers, there's also a very personal element to this in terms of your workforce. Um, and having employees and things that can actually speak this language and use these procedures, right, Lisa? I mean, so in terms of sort of, um, you mentioned the aging workforce as well in mining. I mean, is there an element to this in, in terms of making our industry more appealing to the younger generations to sort of, you know, competing? Maybe it's as cool to work for Gold Corp as it is to work for Google or Microsoft or... Right? Well, try to hire a, the best engineer out of any mining school, right? Yeah. They will go to the mine that has the best technology, the best camp, the best yeah. living accommodations. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's competitive. Uh, it's very competitive, right? And uh, it's a very competitive industry. And uh, not only you're competing against um, your own industry, but now technology companies are seeking, like Fingerfoot, seeking to hire geologists. Yeah. <laughs> when I had my first meeting with uh, with uh, Fingerfoot, they had two geologists in the room. I'm like, well. Why are you guys working for them? <laughs> Come work for us. Yeah. Come work for me, right? So, yeah. so um, you're start competing against. Uh, the talent has become more scarce and uh, more demanded. And uh, look, you have to put the effort to make it more appealing to the younger generation. And and and, and you touch a point on people, right? And uh, everybody gets afraid of. Oh, you're trying to displace people from your workforce. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case. I think, by contrary, what you're doing with this is making the job safer. You know, remove. For example, when you're automating or tele or you're operating a scoop, tell remotely. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be underground to do this. I mean, you're putting yourself out of harm's way. Mm -hmm. You are doing continuous mining instead of, you know, the, uh, the chief changes are faster. I mean, uh, instead of having to sit down, at, you know, in a very remote location, you may be able to sit down at Thunder Bay or at Timmins or, or in a more urban area where, your fam where you can go home that night and be with your family. Yeah. I mean, I see this is opening mining to a whole 
new world of opportunities for people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting. I mean, from that point of view, there is sort of stats out there that indicate you know there's a five percent workforce loss due to digitization and autom- automation coming in the mining industry in the next ten years. And I'm sure at Graham at Finger Foods you hear this about a lot of industries, be it manufacturing or just. I mean, do you think that's maybe a bit overblown in terms of of how much workforce might be lost? in terms of these things like machine learning like are they going to steal jobs like, well I don't think they're going to steal jobs but yeah. they're certainly going to change the jobs that people are doing okay. and I think the key is that you can take a look at your workforce now and figure out how you can repurpose them so that they can provide more value to your shareholders yeah. at the end of the day and is that in terms of new training and, and things like that or yeah. new training yeah. yeah basically if you think about it you're going to take away like very monotonous tasks yeah. um, and replace them with more creative tasks okay so more more yeah more out the, outside the box thinking basically exactly. is, is the big thing. look when we're putting these artificial intelligence for example for exploration First of all, when you look at our uh, job postings, the majority of them are trying to even hire for that job, so it's even hard to try to staff all the positions that we have. Yeah. <laughs> so by doing this, we're not trying to replace the, uh, the geologists. By contrary, we're trying to make the ones that we have more efficient. Yeah. And instead of spending 80% of their time crunching data, if they can spend 80% of their time finding more gold for us, that's, uh, uh, that's a win-win for everyone. That's a good ROI. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the other thing that you hear a bit about is um, maybe historically the mining company hasn't shared information particularly well. I mean, I, not just amongst your own company, but across the industry. I mean, and you're seeing maybe more of these partnership opportunities with larger companies. Do you think that, that, that there has been an opening up, or do you think that that's just a, not occurring? That's, that's changing. Look, for example, we have two joint ventures in Chile yep. and uh, with two other major companies. And mm-hmm. These have opened up opportunity to share more information. We don't necessarily compete in these assets, so sharing technologies and sharing uh, ways of doing business uh, is easy to do at those, uh, those joint ventures. And uh, so far, my experience has been in the last couple of years, we have opened a lot more to collaboration between us, and uh, the government is also uh, trying to incentivize some of this through the uh, super cluster and uh, trying to put in some investment into uh, innovation and uh, making uh, industries like mining more competitive against international players, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I see Canadian mining uh, significantly changing and uh, opening up for uh, this type of collaboration, not only with uh, within mining but with other industries. And uh, the other day we had a conference call with our oil and gas company, yeah. and we're sharing some information on how we could do some things similarly. Yeah. And uh, and uh, uh, those are great lessons learned for everyone. Yeah, and, and oil and gas is an interesting sort of analog for mining because in many ways they are a little bit ahead of us yeah. uh, in a lot of aspects in terms of technology and, and R&D spending especially. And automation, right? right? And automation, yeah. And and it's interesting to me, there, there's a obviously this element of, of improving your cash costs, you're all in sustaining, the return on investment, but there's also a very social aspect to all this in terms of the environment, in terms of sustainability, um, in terms of what you can do with your mine footprints and things like that, right? Um, and I mean, do you think that there's... there's um, a way that the mining industry, I don't want to say can improve its image through some of these technologies, but can maybe be seen as more of a, a partner with, let's say, green energy or with sustainable well, I, development. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because uh, uh, our CEO, uh, Dave Garofalo, he's very big on uh, on reducing our environmental footprint. One of our internal campaigns, uh, we call it uh, H2Zero, which is trying to reduce our water uh, yeah. uh, consumption significantly over the next three or four years, right? So. Uh, we're putting a lot of effort into reducing water consumption, energy consumption, trying to move into more sustainable um, um, energy. Mm-hmm. And from a social license, yes, it will help, but also from carbon footprint, everything. I mean, yep. it, will, it will be so much better for the industry to have green energy and, uh, and, a, and, and a lower footprint. 
And Graham, obviously, uh, this is probably a topic you hear a lot about as well, sustainable electric vehicles, um, renewable energy, and is that something Finger Foods works with quite a bit as well in terms of environmental impacts of some of these big industrial um, industries that you see? Or? Um, so as an organization, I mean, we're very committed to the environment yeah. as well. So. Um, we do everything we can to minimize our footprint. Mm -hmm. Even though we're a small company, it, we still feel like it's, it's our duty to do that. Um, and we certainly work with a lot of the technologies that are supporting these industries. Um, so yeah, sustainability is very important to us and we see a huge opportunity working um, in mining and natural resources to help contribute to achieve some of the, the goals that they have towards those. Well, let's think about it, right? I mean, if we can connect every sensor in the mine and suddenly monitor all of our water consumption, and we can start measuring our, you know, our biggest opportunities to improve, and we start benchmarking against our peers, and we're going to start lowering that water consumption every year. I mean, uh, look, not only your uh, your image will be improved, your the governments will be more willing to license you to operate. Uh, you will have uh, easier access to uh, to uh, resources where and to new properties that uh, may be a little bit hesitant to go into mining. It's it's funny because I just had a conversation um, with, with a government official, and they use the term resource scarcity. And when we think of resource scarcity, we think there's not enough gold or there's not enough copper, but he was talking about air and water. So it's really interesting how that sort of, you know, the definition of that term can be a little bit fluid in terms of what you mean when you say resource scarcity in our business. It's like, well, there's not enough copper there. Um, but, uh, Graham, in the IT business, it's, it's interesting to me, there's sort of this evolving narrative now about how mining is sort of a partner because, you know, a lot of these technologies use a lot of copper and they use gold and they use lithium and cobalt and all sorts of things that, that, that come from, from an, a, a legacy industry, an older industry, right? I mean, it, do you see that in, in, in your partnerships in the IT industry, maybe a, an emerging realization of how important a lot of this raw material is going to be? That well, until you mentioned it, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something that we sort of have a tertiary thought about. Yeah. Um, it's not something that, that's front of mind all the time, but it's a really good point that, yeah. I mean, everybody is reliant on these industries regardless of where you work and what your business does. So we need to do what we can to help support them and be well, successful. When you look at a, how many metals are within just one electronic, yeah. right? I mean, just call it any of your smartphones and tables. Yeah. You know, it has like I don't know, at least 20 different kinds of minerals in there, right? And so uh, mining is important. It's going to be this an ancient industry, but we'll be here in the long term for sure. And we are slowly modernizing. So this is really, this is all very good news. This has been a great conversation. It's good well, news. Maybe not as lost as thing. Yeah, no, 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 no. We're speeding up. That's the thing. We got we're incrementally speeding up here. So, uh, well, gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us. This has been Louise Canapere, the v Vice President of Technology from Gold Corp, and Graham Cunliffe, the Director of Business Affairs and Operations at Finger Food. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Louis and Graham for uh, sitting down and letting me sort of pick their brains there a little bit on uh, the technology partnerships Gold Corp's pursuing, as well as some of the more broad themes and issues uh, mining companies are tackling right now in terms of innovation and technology. Uh, always great to have uh, those conversations, and we'll be following that story along uh, as Gold Corp develops these technologies and applies them at the mine level. Uh, we'll be chasing down story leads from all the majors uh, in terms of what they're doing with automation, um, AI, etc. So uh, we're excited to continue that interview series uh, right through probably to our Progressive Mind Forum next year uh, and continue to uh, have these dialogues with the industry in terms of uh, thought leadership, innovation, and new technology. So exciting stuff. 
Now, quick, quickly, before we head on over to Leslie's Geology Corner, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. This is a a new segment on the podcast you'll see popping up from time to time called the Mining Minute. Uh, And this is where we allow uh, a sponsor company to uh, come on for 60 seconds uh, and sort of either provide an update or a general uh, primer on what their company does or some of the exciting um, sort of milestones they're looking at coming forward or moving forward this year. Uh, We're really lucky this inaugural Mining Minute has Rob McEwen from McEwen Mining. And uh, Rob's been a a great uh, proponent of the Northern Miner, uh, spoken on many of our panels and attended many of our events. So uh, we have a really great relationship with Rob. Uh, so it's a great way to kick off uh, sort of our mining minute here, which is available specifically to mining companies. Uh, and as I mentioned, to come on and sort of uh, give uh, our listeners an overview on what their company does, who they are, uh, and maybe some of the important milestones they have coming up in the near term. So uh, let's run our inaugural mining minute, and I will be at back afterwards to uh, introduce the Geology Corner. What is McEwen Mining? Well, the plan is to make it the next Gold Corp. Had a lot of fun building Gold Corp and like to do it again. Our goal is to get into the S&P 500, to be the second gold stock in the S&P 500. We'll have to do some M&A combined with companies that add production and exploration and go at it quickly, but not sell our soul in the process and dilute our shareholders. I'm the uh, largest shareholder in the company and I own 24% of the company. I have no desire to see a bigger company in the same share price. I get $1 a year as a salary, and I don't have any options, and I don't have any bonus by my choice. So the only way I'm going to make money is exactly the same way my shareholders do, and that's through a higher share price. There's all sorts of companies out there that have grown very quickly, but their shareholders haven't benefited from it. So that's not what I want to do. And and the financial ownership that I have serves as a a very big discipline for management. Once again, to our Mining Minute sponsor of the week, McEwen Mining, a diversified producer with three operating gold mines in low-risk jurisdictions in the Americas. That is MUX on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Please do head over to McEwenMining.com for all their latest corporate materials and press releases. And let's head on over to the Geology Corner with Leslie Stokes for an enlightening chat on geostatistics. And as I mentioned, this is pretty fun because uh, I'm sort of a numbers nerd as well as being generally a uh, AV nerd. Uh, but uh, I love this sort of talk about uh, statistical and predictive modeling and how they're using it uh, to look at ore bodies in, in, in the exploration stage. So this is prior to resource delineation, uh, but they're looking at what they call resource potential. It's actually a really cool conversation. Uh, and obviously, Leslie brings up some of her favorite topics. Uh, for instance, uh, she She's been doing a lot of work on uh, Novo Resources and their Karatha project, as I mentioned at the onset, uh, in Western Australia. So they'll talk a little bit about modeling that. Uh, they'll talk about uh, Barkerville Gold and uh, 
their uh, rather uh, scandalous resource at Cow Mountain back in the day. What was that, 2012? Uh, and they'll talk a little bit about how uh, sort of this predictive modeling works into uh, some more maybe promotional statements that uh, have happened and will continue likely to happen in this business. Uh, but uh, really good chat with uh, Mo and Leslie. I'm going to run this. It's going to uh, actually wrap up our show for the week. Uh, so thank you once again for listening to the Northern Miner Podcast. We very much value you as listeners uh, and everything and all the feedback you bring to the show. Uh, as always, please do uh, rate us on iTunes because that helps us a lot. Uh, follow the Northern Miner on all your favorite social media. That includes Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, and do head over to northernminer.com and consider hitting that subscribe button. For just around 200 bucks. you get uh, the executive subscription, which includes the paper, Web Digital, uh, and our industry-leading Canadian Mines Handbook, which is basically a compendium uh, of mineral properties at various stages throughout the world. Uh, so it's a great screaming deal, and uh, it helps us out, uh, bring you great content week in and week out. Uh, so here we go with uh, Leslie Stokes and the Geology Corner. I'm Matthew Keevil, and I will talk to you next week. Hey, this is Leslie Stokes, writer and geologist with the Northern Miner, and you are listening into another Geology Corner. We've got a really special guest here today. This is uh, Mo Shirvastava. He's vice president of TriStar Gold. Mo, it's pretty cool. Last time I saw you, Mo, um, we were at the Progressive Mine Forum with the Northern Miner right in here. Toronto in October. So, so great to have you back, and hello, happy holidays. How are you? Thank you. Good. Yeah, that was a good forum in October. Yeah, it was fantastic. Really enjoyed everyone's input there, especially on innovation and exploration. So I wanted to haul you back in because you are a very renowned uh, geostatistician. So with focus on geostatistics, um, you studied at MIT, Stanford. You broke the scratch lottery code in 2011 in Toronto. Um, so you're a man of very many talents. And so I wanted to kind of pick your brain about geostatistics and how explorers and geologists in the industry are, are beginning to use geostatistics more and more in resource calculations and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, because for me as a geo back in the day, my the only time I ever really touch on statistics is when I'm pulling up a geochemical plot, looking at maybe gold and soils, and then throwing up the 99th percentile and, and seeing the distribution. That's usually the practical application for most exploration geologists with, with geostatistics. But how, how is that evolving now? in the industry, what are we seeing kind of um, come up out of new geostatistical methods? Geostatistics really took root in the mining industry in the 70s in North America. It grew up theoretically in, in France, and some of the first practitioners over from France uh, came to North America in the 70s. And for most of the past 30 years, 30, 40 years, what the mining industry has drawn from the geostatistical toolkit is a family of methods for helping to predict resources. And then one of the things that any statistical approach will help with is quantifying uncertainty. So you can kind of put error bars around things. And so a lot of people who use geostatistics in the mining industry use it to help them classify the resource. So they've, they've done all their calculations, they've built a block model, and now they need to figure out what parts of that are measured, what parts are indicated, what parts are inferred. And geostatistics has some uh, thoughts, some ideas, some calculations that can be done that help rank things in terms of confidence. So, so that's been the mainstay of it in the, the mining industry. 
in the our close cousin industry, in the oil and gas industry, they took a look at geostatistics pretty closely in the early 80s. And, and they looked at the same estimation toolkit that we use in, in the mining industry. And, and I think it's pretty fair to say that the oil industry was unimpressed with that. They had other ways of building contour maps. They didn't find that geostatistical methods like Krieging, that those were any significant improvement on what they already had. So the, for the most part, the oil and gas industry took a pass on geostatistics in the early 80s. But what they discovered a, a decade later was that geostatistics also offered a family of methods for building multiple scenarios, multiple versions of what a petroleum reservoir might look like. Mm -hmm. And so if you're playing a risk analysis game, if you're trying to figure out what a pessimistic scenario might look like and what an optimistic scenario might look like, geostatistics can help you build this family of possible outcomes. And now you have a whole distribution of possibilities and you can start using that in in what is, is often called a Monte Carlo approach to study the upside potential and the downside potential of a project. So in the petroleum industry, it's the, the simulation toolkit, this ability to build a family of, of outcomes that's the real, the real core of what they use uh, geostatistics for. Mm -hmm. Some mining companies have um, started to use the same simulation toolkit, some of the bigger ones. But, but it's still an unusual approach in the mining industry. It, it hasn't yet become as common in mining as it already is in oil and gas. Right. And it's, but when it comes to exploration potential, the first thing that comes to my mind is Barkerville Gold Mines back in the days of Frank Callahan and him writing on the back of an envelope, 90 million ounces potential in, um, off of their project there. So usually a lot of people kind of get a little bit weary of exploration potential, but how, how is the method that you guys are using um, different than, say, other, um, like, back-of-the-envelope sort of uh, estimates that some, some explorers have exploited before? Um, our, our envelope is much bigger. <laughs> There's a lot more chicken scratches in our, our, our envelope. Yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of computations involved there. To, to come up with our exploration target range, we actually use those uh, tools that I mentioned earlier from the oil and gas industry, the simulation tool that we actually built a hundred different models of what Castello de Sonios could look like. And to build those, we had to um, make clear assumptions about the geological environment where it formed. We had to make assumptions about directions of continuity, about trend directions. Is there a direction that the gold grades die out or do the lenses thicken or thin in a particular direction? So, so we had to get all of our, our assumptions out on the table. But once they're out on the table, you can then get a computer involved to help you work through the consequences of those assumptions and to build this family of 100 different models, you can rank them all from um, best to worst. And what we did is we said the 10th the percentile of that, what statisticians often call the P10, that'll be the low side of our target range. And the 90th percentile, the P90, will be the high side of the target range. So we, we actually have a, a quantitative basis for the calculation that's really well grounded in 
good geology and good data analysis. And, and I think your, your comment is correct. That there's a lot of skepticism about exploration target ranges, and, and legitimately so, because a lot of them end up being kind of arm-waving exercises where a bunch of people sit around in a room and guess at how big it might be. Length times width times grade right. <laughs> and, thickness. And, and I've actually participated in some of those exercises over the years where it's the boldest person in the room that gets to say, well, I think it's between 50 and 80 million ounces, whatever, whatever they say. <laughs> and, and, there, and then once the bold person... <laughs> says, well, I think that, everyone else kind of sits around and says, yeah, well, that may, maybe that could be right. And, and, and it's not really a calculation of any technical substance. It's just, it's kind of wishful thinking informed by a, a bit of experience and some analogizing with other things. Right. And, and so you end up with the 90 million ounce kind of numbers that just don't hold up. They're... They, they end up being a, a discredit to the concept of an exploration target range. And, and I think what we've done has held up. Um, I think our ability to advance the project over the past 18 months has owed a lot to a really good 43-101 report that people can look through and understand how we did the calculation. They might not agree with us, but at least they'll know why they disagree because we laid all of our assumptions bare. We said, we think this, we think this, we think this. We got them all on a piece of paper that's, or a whole report that's posted on CEDAR. And, and so now we're at a point where people can say, well, I understand your story. I understand the assumptions in your story. And I want to see you go ahead and drill it and prove that your assumptions are right. And, and so over the past couple of years, we've raised money, um, a little bit more than 10 million bucks. Um, the vast majority of that has gone into drilling. And this fall, we were able to update the resources and show that the resources are moving towards that exploration target range. But we still have a lot more drilling to do. We haven't drilled the whole thing off because it's a large swath of land. But we can show that this thing that uh, we predicted in early 2016 is holding up. And that's a nice position to be in when you're going to people and asking to raise money. It, it gives them a reason to believe that you know what you're doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. How far do you stretch the assumptions, though? I mean, you take, for example, Novo Resources, um, who has a Paleoplacer project, the Karatha project in, in Western Australia, um, where they're having trouble with their drilling process right now and getting, I guess, the geostatistical mean enough to, to create a bit of a... A, a bulk sample from their diamond drilling or from their RC drilling. So what can they do to benefit from creating maybe a geostatistical resource or a potential resource on their deposit there? Nova's an interesting case. Like I think like a lot of people, I've followed that. Um, Quinton is one of our directors. And so Quinton and I have spoken from time to time over the past several months. But, was with him in Denver in October. And it, it's a fascinating puzzle. It, it clearly has remarkable potential. And then there's that word that sneaks in, if. <laughs> if a whole bunch of assumptions hold up. And, and so I, I think the 
Karatha project would um, be further ahead in terms of being able to um, advance the project towards a, a, a viable operation if they did an explicit calculation of an exploration target range. If they said, here's everything we're assuming. We're assuming a certain kind of depositional environment. We're assuming a certain kind of thickness and the distribution of that thickness. We're assuming something about the the pinch outs and the windows that occur in that layer. Um, we're assuming something about paleo shoreline direction. And, and they're in a great position because they can actually see the paleo shoreline in their ripple marks. That They've got the, the crest lines of beautiful ripple marks that tell them which way the shore pointed. At least locally, there's going to be a bit of fluctuation on it, but, but you can always treat that as a, a sensitivity calculation at the end. And, and so I, I think if you assemble all the assumptions and you say that on the back of these assumptions, I've got this engine that calculates resources, and now I'm going to go through these sensitivity, this kind of knob-twiddling exercise, and what if thickness is 50% lower? What if it's 50% higher? What if the paleo shoreline direction changed? And you can start to build this whole Monte Carlo analysis of how big the resources might be under different assumptions. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of the, the question you asked about how hard you push those assumptions, one of the things that really helps in a, a formal exploration target range analysis of, of the kind we were just talking about is that you can figure out which assumptions are critical because you can put together your calculation engine and you can go through the knob twiddling exercise and you can learn that some of the knobs actually don't have a huge difference. I would guess, for example, this is just pure guesswork on my part, I would guess at Karatha, the exact direction of the paleo shoreline within plus or minus 15 degrees doesn't actually matter a whole lot to the resources. You know, you, you can be off a little bit and the magnitude of the resource will still hold up. And so at that point, if you know that that assumption is not critical to the answer, then you know that you can just set that number to something in the middle of the range and move on to the next assumption and try and work out the sensitivity of that. And so a different kind of assumption that will matter there is the the frequency and size of these windows that little, that like open. was it paleo topographic highs yeah. or something and along this sheet exactly yeah. and, and so when you kind of look down at it in map view it ends up looking like Swiss cheese because there's holes in it mm-hmm. and and you can make assumptions about the frequency and size of those holes you can use modern day analogs to help you with that and and it's probably going to turn out that it, it seems kind of obvious that the frequency and size of those holes is going to have a lot, a big control on the final resource. If you assume there's more holes and the holes are bigger, the resource is going to go down, or, or the, the potential will go down. So I, I think that you can learn through doing a formal exploration target range analysis, you can learn which uh, assumptions are critical, and that puts you a little bit further ahead in terms of planning exploration work that helps you be more confident about those specific assumptions. So so you don't have to plan an exploration program that will pin down the resource. Mm -hmm. That's a gloriously complicated thing to try and pin down. But you can plan an exploration program to pin down 
paleo shoreline directions or size of these windows. It, it's a it's a paleo topography issue that you're dealing with on, on these windows. Um, how do people view this data? Is there like a little software, like a Monte Carlo software that you can download, or is this all done in Excel? What does it look like? I don't even know. Um, <laughs> like, how do you do it, Mom? There are now some academic toolkits that are quite stable. Out of Stanford University, there's uh, there's a package called S-GEMS that is just share where you can download SGEMs and run it, but you're dealing with non-commercial code. The interface isn't that slick. Sometimes it crashes. There's no uh, maintenance or tech support behind it. There's a good book behind it, and that kind of shores up a little bit for tech support, but (laughs) there's no human being you can call when it's 11 o'clock at night and the results are due at 6 in the morning. And you just got the blue screen of death. <laughs> and this just isn't looking really good right now. Um, Do you think there's an opportunity there for software develops, developers to develop something that's a little bit more user-friendly for... Sure. I, I, I think... I, I've said this several times to people that have asked about simulation over the years. I think that if if projects get to the point of thinking of doing conditional simulation, there's a specific issue they're trying to address. Mm. It could be the exploration target range issue that we've been talking about. It could be a blending issue. How do we control the variability in the ore? It could be a grade control issue. How, how close do we need our grade control samples so that we can separate ore from waste? It's all kinds of things that Simulation is really good at answering, but it's it's driven by an issue that's complicating a project. And and so I think in terms of the commercial software that's available, the frustration that a lot of people have is that their software package can create the simulations with a little bit of patience for learning the ropes and getting all the settings correct and the pull-down menus, kind of just getting through the the tricky bit of getting software to work, you can get a hundred different block models on your computer. And, and then what stymies people is, well, what do I do with a hundred different models? Like, this is way more than I know what to do with it. And, and so the, the missing link in commercial software is those post-processors that attend to specific tasks. And so the, the thing that I think would be great is to have something that could take conditional simulation output, 100 different versions of a mineral deposit, and look at the grade control problem. And that different post-processor that would look at blending issues, and a different one that would look at exploration target range. Mm-hmm. And, and I uh, what we did at TriStar is we wrote that code ourselves, and a lot of organizations have someone there who can cobble together the, the kind of customized software. But but there's a similarity in a lot of mines. If it's an open pit grade control problem and you're just trying to figure out spacing, that that's a common enough problem that you should be able to write a generic piece of software that handles most of that analysis. Right. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming in today and enlightening myself and all of our listeners into the world of geostatistics. Great. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me in. (laughs)